guess what time it is. Yep, it's crime time. Hello, weird friends. It's time to talk about murder. If you are new, you should definitely stick around because this is a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Rachel. I am a full-time realtor and mother of two, but I also have a hobby for talking about murder. If you are not a fan of a true crime or these kinds of episodes, I encourage you to go check out my real estate related podcast, which is also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you are listening to me from. I will leave a link in the show notes to my other podcast. If you are interested, it is called Real Estate's A Mother. Thank you to all of my returning listeners. And if you are new and you are still sticking around after hearing how weird I am, then you should stick around a little bit longer and listen to this week's case. You are listening to the boy, the United States' youngest murderer. to dispatch November 5th, 2008, just after 5 o'clock p.m. In the small town of St. John's, Arizona, there was a body laying on the front porch outside of a two-story blue house. The home belonged to 29-year-old father Vincent Romero, but shared with Timothy Romans, 39, who rented one room inside the house. Vincent and Timothy worked together in construction, working at a power plant near St. John's. It was Detective Debbie Neckel who got the call. She threw on her bulletproof vest and dispatched to a familiar neighborhood. Sergeant Lucas Rodriguez accompanied Detective Neckel on the call. Sergeant approached the two-story home, but Neckel was drawn to a teenager and a little boy standing nearby watching. When she approached the boy, she described his arms being stretched outward, near tears. Quote, my dad, my dad, my dad's dead. Inside the home, Sergeant Rodriguez found Timothy Romans dead on the porch and Vincent Romero, the father of this eight-year-old boy, face down on the staircase, also deceased. Let me back up a little bit and explain the family dynamic and background leading up to this November day in 2008. Due to the age of the boy when this crime took place, even though it was back in 2008, I will not be releasing his name. However, I will refer to him as the boy. Vincent Romero was the 29-year-old father of the 8-year-old boy. He did have full custody of the boy, and the boy's biological mother was named Erin Bloomfield, and she would talk on the phone to her son once a week and 
make the 20-hour drive from her home in Mississippi to Arizona on the weekends when possible. Vincent and Aaron had separated six years before the shooting in 2002. However, Vincent remarried a woman named Tiffany after two years of preparation for marriage, making Tiffany the boy's stepmother. Vincent, Tiffany, and the boy lived in St. John's, Arizona, with a population estimated at 3,500 people and around 170 miles northeast of Phoenix. Timothy Romans, as mentioned earlier, was a co-worker of Vincent's, and he rented a room from the family's home. The eight-year-old boy was a third grader, and his biological mother, Erin, described him as being a normal boy. He played video games nonstop, and he loved his new dog, a boxer. However, Erin stated he seemed to be changing. He was growing more distant from her. Aaron described having to go through stepmother Tiffany to talk to her son. Quote, Tiffany would always sit there while he talked on the phone. After a while of that, he became more and more distant. End quote. The boy had disclosed to his mother, Aaron, on one occasion about the fighting that happened frequently in the home between his dad and stepmother. Aaron stated, I called Tiffany about that, and I think I got my son into trouble. The next time she spoke to her son following that incident, the boy stated Tiffany told him what happens in this house stays in this house. According to Aaron, the boy and his father Vincent were very close. They played softball and basketball together, even went hiking and hunting together along with the roommate Timothy Roman. Aaron claimed after Vincent seeked permission from their parish church, he bought their son a 22 caliber rifle for hunting, which was stored under his dad's bed. Biological mother Erin had just finished her last visit when she got the call. It was November 5th, 2008. The boy got home from a day in the third grade and shot his father with a single shot using his 22 rifle, then shooting and killing Timothy Romans after. The boy was scared and ran to the neighbor's house where he told them he thinks his dad is dead and 911 was called. Officers arrived to the Romero's home within minutes of the call. What caused an eight-year-old boy to commit such a brutal crime, killing his own father? Well, my first thought was abuse. Was the father or stepmother, even the roommate, abusing the boy? There were no records or complaints filed with Arizona Child Protective Services. Apache County Attorney Brad Carolyn stated, quote, He had no record of any kind, not even a disciplinary record at school. He has never been in trouble before. However, the police records did show they were dispatched to the Romero home for domestic violence calls in the past. Notice, calls is a plural word. I'm not aware of exactly how many times they were called, but there is now a history of violence in the home. Just a side note, under Arizona state law, at least in 2008, charges can be filed against anyone eight years of age or older. Initially, the boy told authorities he found the two men dead when he got home from school. 
The boy's involvement could have gone undiscovered if it were not for Timothy Romans being on the phone with his wife, Tanya, while he sat on the porch of the home waiting for Vincent to return with a car part. The call between Timothy and Tanya was cut short when Tim heard the boy call for him. Quote, Tim, I need you to come in here. Something is wrong with the dad. End quote. And these are according to court transcripts. I'm guessing this is what the boy said that he told him. It was Tanya who originally urged the police to talk to the boy who was not on the suspect list to begin with. The authorities were first led to believe that the boy was a witness to the crime and might be in danger himself. However, later it was found out that Vincent, the boy's father, entered the home to find his son with a 22 caliber rifle in his hands. He scolded the boy for getting his gun out from underneath his bed. The boy ran upstairs with the gun in hand, turned around as his father followed after him, and shot and killed his father with one single shot. Here's where it gets a little bit confusing for me, anyhow. This is when supposedly the call was interrupted with Timothy and Tanya. I am unaware of whether Tanya or Timothy heard gunshots, and that is what interrupted the call, or he didn't hear gunshots, he just heard the boy call out to him. Whichever way, Timothy went to check, and the boy shot him as well, leaving him dead on the front porch. My first thought was maybe the boy accidentally shot his dad out of fear of his dad chasing him up the stairs, but to call the roommate into the house, stating something along the lines of something is wrong with your dad, and to continue to kill another person afterwards is really confusing for me. From an eight-year-old boy, was he not upset? Was he crying? Did he drop the gun and show any remorse for killing his dad or call for 911? He coaxed the roommate into the house to do the same to Timothy that he just did to his dad. Matrice Avila was the one who recorded and interviewed the little boy, getting a confession. However, the boy's attorney at the time, Benjamin Brewer, stated the police overreached in questioning without proper representation from a parent or attorney and failed to advise the boy of his legal rights. In Benjamin's words, quote, they became very accusing early on in the interview, two officers with guns at their side. It's very scary for anybody, for sure an eight-year-old kid, end quote. The interview can still be found online. The confession tape was released rather early to the public by prosecutors. However, I will describe the scene for you. There is a big, oversized, one-seater leather chair where the boy sits, his face blurred, with his feet dangling, his feet dangling above the floor underneath him, not even old enough, tall enough, to fit in this chair with his feet planted on the ground. I also wanted to mention in the confession tape version that I seen, which may not be the entire version, I did not make a note that I seen one time the boy cry or sound upset. He is heard giving conflicting statements before ultimately admitting to killing the men. 
He buried his head into his jacket and stated, quote, I'm going to juvie, end quote. Now, we can't speak for everyone nor every eight-year-old. However, I do have a seven-year-old of my own, and she's pretty close to turning eight this December, and I couldn't imagine her even knowing the word juvie or what it meant, what it was. I've never heard such terms out of her mouth, and it just makes you kind of wonder where he learned this this term. Sure, he was, I guess, in the third grade, but um, was this something that his family referred to? Um, maybe when he got in trouble, was this something that they told him or a place that they told him that he was going to go? Remember how I told you Detective Neckel was familiar with the neighborhood she was dispatched to? Well, she was also familiar with this little boy. She knew him as the boy who was jumping on the trampoline, coaxing a cat from a culvert, and would call her Mrs. Neckel, and waved as she backed out of the driveway, calling out, have a good day at work. You can imagine how confusing this must have been to vision this eight-year-old child committing a brutal crime. Detective Neckel recalls the moment the truth sank in. After 45 minutes into the confession tape, the boy demonstrated how one of the bodies shook when he kicked it with his foot. The boy was arrested the next day and held in a juvenile detention center. The prosecutors were not sure how to handle this case or where exactly it was headed. Quote, there's a ton of factors to be considered and weighed, including the juvenile's age. The counterbalance against that were the acts he apparently committed, end quote. According to FBI statistics, they show instances of children younger than 11 committing homicides is very rare. Mike Picaretta, who is a defense attorney but didn't work on this particular case, made a statement. Each case has to be considered on its own merits, but that it would be hard for him to comprehend that an eight-year-old has the mental capacity to understand the act of murder and its implications. He quoted, if they actually prosecute the guy, it's a legal minefield. And two, society has to make a decision as to whether they want to start using the criminal justice system to deal with eight-year-olds. That doesn't mean you have a troubled kid. No motive was revealed. The boy did refer to spankings in discussion with child welfare investigators. He mentioned he was spanked for not bringing home school papers, behavioral papers from his teacher, which doesn't make sense to me because the boy was investigated. There were no disciplinary actions on record from his school. According to the child, Vincent and stepmother Tiffany told the boy he would be spanked once for each day he forgot them. The boy was expecting to get spanking that day of the shootings. How do you go from no disciplinary action at school to the United States youngest murderer? Double homicide murderer. The boy pled guilty to negligent homicide in connection with the death of Timothy Romans. The prosecutors dropped the premeditated murder charges of his 29-year-old father in exchange for that plea. 
The plea agreement also called for the boy to be sent to a treatment facility and undergo evaluations and intensive probation until he turned 18. The boy was placed in a youth development institute facility before being moved to a group home in the Phoenix area. In 2012, a petition was filed to revoke the then 12-year-old boy's probation, accusing him of 25 violations, which included smashing a wall clock, making death threats, and leaving the treatment center without permission. All but three of those violations were dropped. Fast forward to 2015, when the boy was 15 years old. Are you guys catching that? pattern of his age in the year. No, not just me. Okay. There was an evaluation that showed that he did not pose a threat to himself or others, and this allowing him to join a regular classroom and move into a foster home that is more like home, said attorney Ron Wood. The prosecutors and the widow of Timothy Romans were upset. He was being allowed to return back to a society. Tanya Romans voiced her fear about the precautions that would be taken to ensure he doesn't run away from school and whether or not the students and teachers would be made aware of his history. In Tanya's words, you don't know what he's capable of. I wouldn't want him anywhere near my family. Well, of course, he killed your husband. I have to say, you guys, I'm still kind of on the fence with this one. I kind of side with Tanya on this fact. Um, just as a mother myself, I would definitely want to know if my children were going to public school with somebody that had been committed of murder, um, a double homicide at the young age of eight. But I also kind of see the point where his identity needs to be savored in a situation like this. He's 15 now or then, and he had gone through years of extensive probation and treatment and psychological evaluations. And I agree that if he were to go to a public school, it would do him more harm to have his identity and his history disclosed to the public. Roger Jacks, a superintendent of Kingman Unified School District and member of the State Education Board, had this to say, quote, any school that is approached should talk with their lawyers to ensure that the rights of the boy and students are safeguarded, end quote. However, Judge Monica Stauffer stated the boy would be going back to school, but would not be attending school in the St. John's area. It would not be publicly released due to his age and privacy. Liz Castillo, the mother of Vincent Romero, which is the grandmother of the eight-year-old boy, was one of the boy's biggest supporters, and she regularly attended his court hearings and visitations. She has kept to herself throughout the years, um, but she did make this one statement, quote, she would not give up on her grandson. The boy's biological mother, Aaron, has been in and out of his life, and Judge Stauffer even issued an order for his mother's explanation to why she hasn't been turning over the boy's social security payments to help offset the cost of treatment. The boy's current attorney, Ron Wood, made a statement that his client has made a substantial progress since a psychologist took an active interest in the boy's well-being. The boy even stated he wanted to play football, learn how to drive a car, kiss a girl, 
and just be a regular kid. Runwood quoted, he is now a young man, not the kid we saw before. Megan Arrigo, director of child welfare policy at the Children's Action Alliance, agreed transitioning the boy into a therapeutic foster home will allow the boy to be in a less controlled setting and help him develop those connections with a family as opposed to a dorm-style living. The foster family that would take him in will be required to have a specialized training and meet more stringent requirements than any other foster homes. Prosecutor Michael Whiting acknowledged the psychiatrist who treated the boy for offering to even take him in, as well acknowledged were several unnamed people who have gone out of their way to ensure that this boy got help. Detective Neckel was interviewed again in 2017 when the boy turned 18 years old. She opened up that she had developed a fear of children around a year after the boy was charged. She spent a lot of her free time researching kids who killed, trying to better understand what happened. It was quality time with her grandkids that helped her with her recovery and to open back up to children. Quote, I can't give up on a kid. I hope that releasing him isn't the worst mistake ever made, but he was a little kid. You have to give him a chance, end quote. The boy turned 18 years old on December 29th, 2017. This milestone allowed him to sign paperwork, freeing himself from extensive probation, psychological evaluations, travel restrictions, and having his every move monitored. Michael Whiting says, quote, he will likely stay in foster care beyond his 18th birthday and continue treatment until he is 21 years of age. If you want to ask my opinion, I think that this is going to be a lifetime of treatment, unfortunately for this boy, not only because of the crime he commit, but also the possibility of blame, regret, and remorse that he may face later in life. This coming December, the boy will be turning 20 years old. It is a mystery where he is now. I would hope he is doing well and getting the love and care he needs and his privacy is being respected. Do you think an eight-year-old boy who commit two murders is capable of becoming a respectful, responsible adult? Well, I will leave that up for you to decide for yourself. Let me know your comments about this case. I upload extra content over on my Pocket Full of Crime Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to the Bond family for requesting this week's case. If you have a murder you would like to be featured in an upcoming episode, message me on social media or email pocketfullofcrime at gmail.com. I am representing Colorado as a Mission 22 ambassador. The mission supports the veteran community with three main programs, veteran treatment programs, memorials, and community social impact. Mission 22 is dedicated to healing America's veterans when they need it most. Right now, each day, 22 veterans take their own life, but together we can win the war against veteran suicide. I will always leave the link in the show notes below where you can go donate today and help our nonprofit give back to our brave men and women. This is what sparked my interest in the All Out American segment. This episode, I want to nominate Navy SEAL James Hatch. Hatch was severely wounded while on a mission to rescue Army Sergeant 
Beau Bergdale. His femur shattered. He had endured 18 surgeries in a two-year time span. His career ended in the military due to his debilitating post-traumatic stress disorder and nearly taking his own life. James found relief with cognitive behavioral therapy and even started a nonprofit in October of 2014. Spikes Canine Fund, providing 925 police and military dogs with medical aid and protective gear. You can read more into James Hatch and his dog Spike's inspirational story on Stars and Stripes. I will leave the link below. Thank you, James Hatch. I wish you the very best of luck in the future. Thank you for your service. Join me next time for another true crime episode. If you have a veteran nominee you would like featured in an all-American segment, be sure to email those names or visit me on social media. Be sure to subscribe, give me a rating and a review, and of course, share this podcast with a friend. Until next time, stay weird, my friends. Oh, and one more thing. Hi, mom. <laughs>